of it sucks, half is great. It's too simple as a way to summarize the special because both parts are the same comedian using the same techniques and all of them are some version of Seinfeld. That's Catherine Van Arendonk of New York Magazine slash Vulture. Her review of the brand new comedy special available on Netflix that came out on Friday. It's Jerry Seinfeld, 23 Hours to Kill. Something we'll be reviewing this time here on Cinephile. In addition to that, for your classic cut this week, going back to a film which won two Academy Awards for Best Actor and Best Actress, that would be on Golden Pond from 1981, Catherine Hepburn and Henry Fonda. And the first thing we're going to dive into is Hollywood, a new miniseries from Ryan Murphy. It's available on Netflix. I saw the first episode, and I'll tell you all about that. Plus, we got a great guest today, Rob Paulson, who is an acclaimed voice actor, Pinky and the Brain, Ninja Turtles, Animaniacs. He's got an excellent book out, which I read called Voice Lessons, and he's going to tell us all about his life lessons he's learned along the way. Um, as always, we appreciate the support all of you are giving us. Please do go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. That's how we keep the, the podcast rolling these days. And like I said, I hope everybody's staying safe and staying at home. Uh, D Black 519 had messaged, I love listening to the show on a weekly basis. However, what happened to the Eddie Murphy Mount Rushmore? Well, just for you, D Black 519, that will be our Mount Rushmore this week. So there you go. Bam. Mount Rushmore Eddie, excuse me, Mount Rushmore Eddie Murphy. Also, Doc Lou Iowa commenting on the Goodwill ending, which Joe made reference to in regards to Rounders. Joe, he was driving to Palo Alto as Mimi was going to Stanford Medical School, but I like how you think. Maybe he turns out to be a tech genius in that area. I did like how Joe made that connection of Rounders being a sequel to Goodwill Hunting, right? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Matt Damon left Boston, became a gambler. And it's a Goodwill Hunting sequel. It came out the year after Goodwill Hunting too, so I think it lines up. <laughs> uh, definitely, I get get some messages from people saying, "I can't believe I haven't seen Rounders before." Well, that's why we get around to these things. This is the benefit of quarantine. Speaking of things I hadn't seen, I told you all about Succession. How brilliant it is! How glad I'm on the Succession train. Well, now we have time on our hands, so I'm diving through Ozark. We'll do a deep dive next week. My wife and I are two episodes away from finishing season two. Season three was released in late March, a couple of months ago. So by next week, we'll have uh, finished the entire Ozark trilogy, 10 episodes in each season, 30 hours, just pounding through. Uh, And we'll also talk about an HBO miniseries, I Know This Much Is True, from Mark Ruffalo playing dual roles from the book by Wally Lamb. Uh, Once again, that's every Sunday night. I've seen two episodes of The Six. Third episode coming up, we'll review that next week. Let's dive into what we got this week around, though. I hope everybody uh, enjoyed The Last Dance, which finally finished up. And in case you want to check out our previous review, you can do that here on Cinephile. And also, major news, of course, the passing of Fred Willard. Uh, We're going to get into that in just a second in more detail. But a previous episode of Cinephile, for guys like Mitch Green, who haven't been listening the whole way through, check out Christopher Guest, the acclaimed comedic writer, director, interviewed him back when I was at ESPN, and I talked specifically about how much I love Fred Willard, and he's got some great stories about Fred. So check out Christopher Guest on a previous episode. And thank you to Chris Duffy, Brett Baker, who pointed out, by the way, on Succession, apparently I misspoke. I said Kieran Culkin, I think I said he's Macaulay Culkin's son. He's, of course, Macaulay Culkin's brother. Thank you for the fact-checking, and thank you for the listens. And to my old boss, Dave Rutherford, now listening. Daver in the house listening. So I appreciate the fact we have new listeners all the time. Hollywood. In post-World War II Hollywood, an ambitious group of aspiring actors and filmmakers will do almost anything to make their showbiz dreams come true. It is fairly no-name cast. You might recognize the name Darren Chris, Raymond Ainsley. He's also a friend of 
the work of Ryan Murphy. Joe Mantello, you might recognize him. Dylan McDermott, definitely a name person in the cast. And apparently Jim Parsons and Mira Servino pop up at some point. I believe it's seven episodes on Netflix. I only got through one episode because, spoiler alert, I didn't think it was that great. Main character, Jack Costello, played by David Cornsweet. Listen, I love the era in which it takes place. My sister-in-law, Rumla, recommended it to me because, of course, I love old Hollywood. And Ryan Murphy certainly can make you swoon when it comes to the backdrop and the locations. And it's about this young actor who wants to make it in the biz. Time told tale. And so he meets Dylan McDermott one day in a bar, and he says, I might have a job for you, kid. McDermott's definitely having fun sending up, you know, one of those 40s character actors. All right, kid, tell me what you got. And he says, you know, I was in the Army, too, but they kicked me out. And he said, why? Because I've got a huge dick. He's like, oh, yeah, 12 inches. It was an issue. I couldn't be in the Army. So with that bit of information, this Jack Costello still decides to follow along Dylan McDermott and his large dingus because he says he's got a job for him. He runs a gas station. And the kid says, no, I don't want to work at a gas station. I want to work in pictures. He goes, don't worry. I'll make you work in pictures, kid. Just come with me. He goes to the gas station and realizes that it's really just a ruse for a gigolo. These older women show up in their cars and say, fill her up. And they say, hey, hop in. They go to a hotel and then they sleep together. And before he hires him, Dylan McDermott's character asks Jack Costello, hey, you ever cheated on your wife? He's a newlywed. He said, no, I haven't. He said, well, don't worry. After you get to the first time, you'll be fine. And it's a lot of good money. And clearly this guy needs the money. So he does it the first time with an older lady. And now all of a sudden you're, you're feeling like you're watching The Graduate. Are you, you're trying to seduce me, Mrs. Robinson. So then it goes to a different path because the next time a guy drives in the car. And all of a sudden, he's told by Dylan McDermott, no, you're going to go, excuse me, he doesn't drive in a car. There's a trailer waiting out back, and there's a guy in there. He's like, wait, 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 what's this about? He's like, come on, what do you think, kid? They say he makes some extra money. He's like, no, no, I'm not gay. I'm not going to do this. All right, well, then you're fired. Jack Costello leaves, ends up finding another guy, a young African-American kid who is gay, captures him in the act at a movie theater. He's blowing another guy. So he captures him, pretends he's FBI, or pretends he's a cop, excuse me, ends up arresting him in quotation marks, and then tells him afterwards, don't worry, you're not in trouble, I'm not a cop, but I've got a job for you. I work at this gas station, I'll take care of the girls, you take care of the guys. And so he brings him to Dylan McDermott and says, okay, here we go. And the first episode ends with something of a cliffhanger as the cops do bust them for having this uh, sex on the premises under the auspice of being a gas station attendant. Suffice to say... You know, when it comes to the story, you've got to grab me with interest. And even though I love the artifice of Hollywood and the outside of it, the locations and the period detail and the music specifically, and why is it, by the way, as a jazz fan, every single time you have a movie taking place in that era, it's almost like they're contractually compelled to have Glenn Miller's in the mood, right? Every single time you see a scenic shot, boom. So yes, in case you're wondering, Glenn Miller's In the Mood is in the movie. Uh, excuse me, in the miniseries. Begin the Begin by Artie Shaw, I'm sure, is in there as well. Regardless, I just didn't find the story compelling. One thing you know about Ryan Murphy, and listen, he's made gobbles of money. I believe he has a Netflix deal worth over $100 million. This is the creator of Glee. This is the guy who made the tremendous People vs. O.J. Simpson miniseries. That won nine Emmys. Phenomenal. Sarah Paulson won, uh, Courtney B. Vance won, and Sterling K. Brown won. That was when I knew Sterling K. Brown is going to be a star, and certainly he has vindicated my belief in him. But Ryan Murphy's a big deal. Netflix gave him a ton of money, but I got to tell you, when it comes to Hollywood, I'd rather be watching Bollywood. I'm giving Hollywood two Maple Leafs. I watch one episode, and I'm out. Joe? Yeah, I, d- I haven't seen this just because it, 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 the mixed reviews that came out. I like Ryan Murphy. Everything that he's done, I've really enjoyed, especially um, 
American Horror Story, like you said, People versus O.J. Simpson. I don't know if you've seen Feud, but that I thought that was pretty good, too. Um, this show just seems like a typical Ryan Murphy show, stylized, really, really well done and well executed, sexy, but I won't, I won't check it out because of what you're telling me. Yeah, two Maple Leafs for me, Shirley Lee of The Atlantic. The show doesn't present a series of interventions that could have accelerated the industry's progress. It presents a series of ridiculous plot contrivances. And Sam Adams of Slate writes, when you factor in that the art Hollywood is talking about includes Hollywood itself, the self-congratulation verges on the obscene. Let's get that out of the way. Let's talk about Jerry Seinfeld. New hour-long special, 23 Hours to Kill. Uh, just came out on Netflix, and uh, it was a spectacular arrival to the Beacon Theater in New York City. Of course, the Beacon is a very fabulous place for comedy and lots of live shows. And so it's good to have Seinfeld back. But unfortunately, again, I'm going to have to give this one a mixed review. I'll give you Seinfeld credit, man. Listen, he's 65 years old, and he looks great. He still has hair. Uh, he's still trim. Hasn't put on a pound over the years. Uh, credit to him and whatever he's eating in his fitness regimen, considering the fact on Seinfeld, I always just assumed he liked eating cereal all day. Um, I think his, his comedic chops are still relatively sharp, but like most comedians, it's now got into the tried and true formula. You know, the, the funniest season of Seinfeld to me was season three, when they were actually sending up Seinfeld. It was like, you know, making fun of Seinfeld, and that's where they were pitching a show about nothing. And of course, you know, I love shows to that ilk. Look at the Larry Sanders show, but... That's what I thought Seinfeld was. That's funny. They're making fun of comedians who are like, do that observational stuff. Have you ever noticed one, et cetera? So when you're actually seeing Seinfeld do that, to me, it's not as funny because he is doing exactly what he has made fun of in the past, which a lot of comedians have done, which arguably no one's ever done as well as Seinfeld. Fine, I get that. There's some great moments, especially early on. There's an excellent bit about texting versus talking on the phone, which I'm a huge fan of. I love texting, as is Jerry. Explains why there's no reason ever to call anybody again. That review, which I read off the top, about half of it sucks, half of it's great. A great routine about how when it comes to anything in life, either it sucks or it's great. You go to a restaurant in New York City, everyone says it's great. You go there, man, I thought it kind of sucked. He said, you hear about a movie. Let's go see this movie. No, I heard it sucked. Really? I heard it was great. He said that you have an ice cream cone, it falls on the floor, and you go, oh, that sucks. And you look up to the sky and say, great. So that's a very clever bit. He's also got a good little routine about how when you repeat something twice, it, it, it matters more in terms of emphasis. Business is business. You know, it is what it is. Uh, we'll deal with that when it comes, that kind of stuff. So that's very funny as well. But at the last 17 minutes to me, I don't think I smiled once. My wife walked by one point. She goes, are you laughing? I go, no. I, he does this bit about marriage, which feels like it's out of 1987. It's about as antiquated as it gets in terms of your wife's tone and what she says, what words mean. I mean, comedy since the caveman of talking about you know marriage and stuff. And if it's done well, of course, I'm all in. But this felt like you know Paul Reiser comedy from three decades ago. And it was genuinely quite lame. So I agree with that review saying half of it sucks, half of it's great. Listen, in today's world, while we're all dealing with COVID-19, everybody could use a laugh, which is why I'm giving it a mild recommendation. I'm giving it two and a half Maple Leafs because the first 30 or 40 minutes did make me laugh out loud a few times. And I'm just happy to see a comedian, I wouldn't say at the top of his powers, but still churning out relatively new material. My brother tells me the texting joke was from 2017. He saw him live a few years ago. I also, one thing I like about Seinfeld, he doesn't get as much credit for, is just how animated he is on stage. At one time, he actually falls down the ground. You know, he's doing a few different voices. Also, a guy who's always gone by clean comedy, which he said was because of his hero, Bill Cosby. Obviously, he did not know what Bill was up to all those years. But this time, he actually drops a couple of goddams. He drops ass once. I'm like, all right, it's good to hear Jerry getting a little saltier over the years. Um, but obviously, he's still not, uh, you know, George Carlin, Eddie Murphy dropping F-bombs out there. Ultimately, it's a pleasant diversion. Two and a half Maple Leafs. 
Joe, I know you saw it as well. Your thoughts on 23 Hours to Kill? Well, I've talked about Jerry Seinfeld before and how much I like him. And uh, having watched this, the whole time I was thinking, here is a rich, old, white man who is trying to relate to everyday people, which he was able to do in the 90s in an absurd, mundane, you know, pointing out the absurdities and the mundaneness of life. I, I just think because time and money has insulated him, he's not able to connect that closely to at least how I feel about the world. You know what I mean? No, that's a good point. At one point, he tries to make a joke about that, that whole bit about sucks and great, because all of our lives suck. Maybe my life doesn't suck as much as you guys. But you're right. Like in the past, maybe that was endearing. Now you're kind of like, hey, let's get this guy's a dick. He's just flaunting the fact he's got hundreds of millions of dollars and you got 35 million Americans who are out of work right now because of COVID-19. Even later on, he's talking about, you know, why am I even here? You know, I could be anywhere in the world right now. And everyone, and he goes, you, you know a lot of things about me. You know how much money I have. You know all these things about me. So you're right. I think back in the day when he was just a goofy guy who was doing a sitcom, which not many people were watching. It was an underground hit. Critics loved it. And then it became a huge hit, you know, probably midway through its run. I want to say maybe season five out of nine seasons, it became the number one show on TV. And then, you know, Larry David left after season nine and so on. And of course, you know, rerun syndication, monster hit before the much pan you know, finale. You're right. It's, it's a much different Jerry Seinfeld than the guy we had back then. It was kind of endearing how, you're right, he would point at minutia and point out things. Now, you're right, he's just a filthy, rich old man just living off his uh, greatest hits, so to speak. Right, yeah. And the whole time I'm watching it, Adnan, I'm thinking I should just be watching a Sebastian Maniscalco special um, because I can tell the influence that Sebastian Maniscalco has from Jerry Seinfeld. But I think that he is the funnier comedian after watching this special. I did see Maniscalco's special. I believe it's on Netflix or you know, one of these channels I have, Hulu or something. So you're right. I've never actually seen one of his specials. I loved him in The Irishman. I've seen bits and pieces of him and think he's very funny. I know he hosted the Video Music Awards before. So you're right. You know what? That's a good recommendation by Joe. Let's all check out Sebastian Maniscalco. Why here is very, very funny when it comes to his stand-up. Alex McLevy of AV Club. Most refreshing is the way Aegis found Seinfeld leaning into the bleak nihilism that has always laced his comedy. The dark undercurrent of his material now evolved past the point of misanthropy into a full-throated disgust for the human race as a whole. Ouch. And Garrett Martin of Paste Magazine. It is, for better or worse, exactly what you'd expect from a Jerry Seinfeld stand-up special in the year 2020. Garrett Martin of Pace Magazine, I'd agree with that. One more before we get to our special guest, Rob Paulson, acclaimed Emmy Award-winning voice actor, and that is on Golden Pond. And we've got time right now to go through these movies and check out things of the past. So for every Scott Turkinson, I can't believe I've seen Rounders. Well, hell, can't believe I've never seen on Golden Pond. Cantankerous retiree Norman Thayer, Henry Fonda, and his conciliatory wife, Ethel, Catherine Hepburn, spend summers at their New England vacation home on the shores of idyllic Golden Pond. This year, their adult daughter, Chelsea, Jane Fonda, visits with her new fiancé and her teenage son, Billy, Doug McKean, on their way to Europe. After leaving Billy behind to bond with Norman, Chelsea returns, attempting to repair the long-strained relationship with her aging father before it's too late. Now, oftentimes, when you think about in life, people that you know who love movies, maybe I'm one that comes up in your conversations. You say, I know this guy. He loves old movies. He appreciates old movies, appreciates old-time actors. That is all true. But this movie is absolutely dreadful. On Golden Pond, it almost unfolds like it's folding in real time. It is like the worst of the 1980s in terms of the music is so bad and so schmaltzy. Like, I've criticized Hoosiers before. Brett Carrick won't forgive me. But the music in Hoosiers is awful. I, I stand on that hill. And when you watch the music on Golden Pond, it's that bad synth pop of the 80s. 
You've got way too many shots of just ducks and loons traversing the landscape. And ultimately, it is just a bickering couple. And of the two, I mean, Henry Fonda could be in Grumpy Old Men minus the comedy. He could be like with Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. He's just this miserable old doddering fool who his wife calls a boob all the time. Catherine Hepburn, I think, fares a little better. Um, but both characters are not particularly likable. They're not anybody you want to spend more time with. It's exactly why I'd say, well, God, I cannot wait to not be old because I don't want to be these people miserable all the time. I- I'm shocked. Actually, I'm not shocked. I'm not surprised it won Oscars because I think about it. Well, listen, the Oscars are what? Oftentimes, a legacy. And you reward people for winning when they should have won. Henry Fonda had never won a competitive Oscar. This was his last screen role. That's shocking he'd never won for The Grapes of Wrath or 12 Angry Men or so many great films over the years. Uh, Failsafe, for example. So, you know, I, I watched this movie and I go, yeah, of course he won. He was 80. Guy hadn't won before. It's like, it's like a Pacino had never won and they won for The Irishman. Of course, The Irishman, a much better movie. But my point is, you like to reward people for the past. So I get fond of winning. The surprise to me, and as I said, Catherine Hepburn, I think, is better, but Catherine Hepburn is one of the most acclaimed actresses of all time. She has 12 Oscar nominations and four wins. Meryl Streep, for comparison's sake, has 21 nominations and three Oscars. How about that for a parlor game? Who would you rather be? Meryl Streep, 3 and 21, or Hepburn, 4 and 12? And Hepburn, I don't even think she won for her best movie, which is Bringing Up Baby. I mean, she's tremendous with Cary Grant and the screwball comedies. I mean, she won for The Line in Winter. She won for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And I don't think she would have won, should have won for On Golden Palm. But again, I'd have to go see who all the nominees are from 1981. But it is a highly sentimental, schmaltzy look at an old couple. It's incredibly boring. There's not much I can recommend out of it. You do get Jane Fonda in a bikini, if that's your thing. At that time, she's a big sex symbol. I guess it's nice seeing her and father and daughter, you know, camping out together. But uh, I'm amazed that people loved it this much. Gene Siskel, one of my favorite critics of the Chicago Tribune, there is a natural rhythm to the film that makes its own quiet, life-affirming statement. Yeah, the life-affirming statement is, don't watch on Golden Pond. One maple leaf. Joe, it pains me, but I thought it was painful. <laughs> I I haven't seen this movie in years, uh, though, Adnan, you have to understand any movie that prominently features a loon, I'm all about. I don't know if you knew this, but I have a half sleeve, I have a half sleeve tattoo on my arm of a loon uh, that covers up my entire left arm. So I'm all about it. I'm all about it. Uh, we'll do a mini total recall really quick. I'm going to go with best actor and best actress from that year. Henry Fonda went up against Warren Beatty for Reds, Burt Lancaster for Atlantic City, Dudley Moore for Arthur, and Paul Newman for Absence of Malice, while Catherine Hepburn went up against Diane Keaton for Reds, Marsha Mason for Only When I Laugh, Susan Sarandon for Atlantic City, and Meryl Streep for The French Lieutenant's Woman. Okay, I have not seen all the nominees, but I'm already appalled now. Like, Joe has definitely hit a nerve because now I'm even more incensed they won. Warren <laughs> Beatty, and Reds might be Warren Beatty's best man. I love Bugsy. You're not going to meet many people who love Bugsy more than me. And I, I'm telling you, I love Bugsy. And Reds might be his better movie. It, it, we're going to talk about Reds another time, actually, because it's amazing what he pulled off with Reds. That's a three-hour movie, but a communist. Think about that. And that came out in 1981 when Reagan is president, the height of capitalism. You're gonna, I'm going to make a movie about a communist, and it's an incredible movie. I saw it about mm, 10 years ago. I remember I watched it with a jaundiced eye. I said, okay, I don't know if I can get through a three-hour-plus movie about a communist, John Reed. And it's sensational. Like, it's smart. It's funny. It's well-directed. It's beautifully romantic. Warren Beatty should have absolutely won for Reds. Or the other one, and I just was talking about this with my buddy Scott Rakowski. We talked about Burt Lancaster because he watched Sweet Small Success. Incredible film if you haven't seen it. 
And I see, you know, my favorite Burt Lancaster movie is actually Atlantic City, which apparently is available right now on the Criterion Channel. I haven't seen it in years. I love Atlantic City. Um, he's basically an old crook who's in search of redemption. Louis Mal directed it. Also did Au Revoir, Les Enfants. So I'll tell you right now, it should be either in Beatty or Lancaster. And I know Joe likes comedy, so what the hell? If Dudley Moore should have won, I'm fine with that too for Arthur. But actress, either Diane Keaton or Susan Sarandon. Susan Sarandon, fantastic in Reds. Uh, excuse me, in Atlantic City. She's the young ingenue. The first scene, Burt Lancaster's playing a peeping Tom. He's just staring at a nubile Susan Sarandon topless. And he's just in love with her while this opera music is playing. I mean, it is a, it a haunting way to start a movie. But Beatty or Lancaster should have won Best Actor. And Best Actor should have been either Diane Keaton or Susan Sarandon. What a gigantic miss by the Academy. I like the immediate total recall by Joe. Uh, coming up next, our special guest, voice actor Rob Paulson. I'm not going to talk to him about On Golden Pond. I'm going to talk to him about his career as a voice actor and how cancer robbed him of something that he needed most in life. That's next. All right, some entertainment news before we get to our special guest. As I mentioned off the top, Christopher Guest, a previous guest on Cinephile. Very funny guy. And, of course, somebody who you think of immediately when you think of Fred Willard, one of the all-time comedic greats. Best in show. For your consideration, this is Spinal Tap, passing away Friday of natural causes at the age of 86. He was an absolute scene stealer in Christopher Guest's comedies. Waiting for Guffman, best in show for your consideration, and a mighty wind. As well as moments in This is Spinal Tap, Anchorman, Austin Powers, and Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. Hundreds of credits for an acting career spanned over 50 years. Sitcoms like New Girl, Community, Modern Family, offbeat comedies like Tim and Eric, uh, Reality TV, The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, and also an Emmy-nominated turn on The Bold and the Beautiful. How about that for soap operas? Fred Willard in Best in Show is about as funny as it gets. I mean, it's a crime. He didn't even get nominated or didn't even win an Oscar for that performance, playing a Joe Garagiola type at the dog show, offering these bizarre non sequiturs. You know, the other guy's this British guy, upper crust, takes it seriously, talks about a shih tzu, and Phyllis like, oh, that's a fun name to say. And then out of nowhere, he says, how much do you think I can bench? I mean, it's one of the funniest lines ever. And a mighty wind, he gives this bit about what happened, and I don't think so. It is so funny. I'm telling you, Fred Willard, uh, what happens as often happens, I think for a lot of us, somebody passes away, you go, I got to go back and indulge in some of this stuff. I haven't had a chance yet, but I'm going to go back and watch some of the best of Fred Willard. Joe, absolute comic genius. Oh, it's, it, when I saw this news, I was le- legitimately sad. His timing, his comedic timing was so good. And he delivered deadpan so well. Every scene he was in, he would steal. Um, but I saw him on, the last thing I saw him in was in this Netflix show called I Think You Should Leave, written by a former SNL cast member, Tim Robinson. And he was equally as funny as that at 85 years old as he was in A Mighty Wind or Best in Show. He's great. I, he'll be missed for sure. All right. Good recommendation to check out if you're a Fred Willard fan. Other major news coming down the pipe. Call me by your name, director Luca Guadagnino. Set to take on Scarface. That's right. As I tweeted, say hello to my little reboot or say hello to my little remake. Again, the original stars Paul Muni, directed by Howard Hawks, 1932. And then, of course, the 1983 film, a landmark classic, Al Pacino, and directed by Brian De Palma. Um, of course, Call Me By Your Name, that Timothée Chalamet and Army Hammer. He also did Suspiria, which I never saw. I wasn't crazy about Call Me By Your Name. Critics loved it. I thought it was boring and... 
it literally took years off my life. But anyways, um, I'm not crazy about Scarface being made again just because I love the, the Cuban classic. And the fact that originally Sidney Lumet was going to direct it, and it was Oliver Stone's, uh, excuse me, it was Lumet's idea to make him Cuban. And Oliver Stone wrote the script, and then Lumet, for whatever reason, had a conflict of interest. And so De Palma came along, and De Palma made it so operatic and so memorable. Uh, you know, think about Pacino's career. It's either Michael Corleone or uh, Tony Montana. That's what he'll be most remembered for. So I, I think don't mess with genius, but what the hell? If you're going to have a lack of creativity, it's already been remade once before. What does get me interested is the Cone brothers are writing the script, and I do love the Cones. So maybe it'll be a little quirky, a little funny. It'll be definitely a different feel than De Palma's film. Guadagno, as I said, I mean, that was an Italian set romance between two guys. And he also did a horror film that was a remake of Dario Argento. So apparently this guy likes his remakes. And I'm sure he'll have a different feel to it. Scarface coming soon, a different version. Tepid interest for me. Joe, your reaction? Yeah, I mean, the saving grace to me is what you said, the Conan brothers writing it. Because the 1983 version is still so much in pop culture today and referenced so often that I feel like the only way you could do this is if you take the story and, and make it different somehow. And I feel like the Coen brothers could possibly do that. So I'll check it out just because they're writing it. Um, Calling by your name, I thought was okay too. I got, you know, I, I watched it, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see it. Yeah. I can never eat a peach the same way after watching that movie. Um, <laughs> in terms of the movie being in the zeitgeist, you're absolutely right. Brian De Palma was on Alec Baldwin's podcast. Here's the thing. You should check it out. About 30 minutes long. It was a previously uh, recorded interview with De Palma that Baldwin just released. And when he spoke about Scarface, exactly to your point, you know, it's still around. Alec Baldwin said he just heard a story recently about a bunch of drug dealers who were busted. And apparently they would play Scarface all the time. Like it was literally on a loop in their place. And that's what these guys do. Like any of these would-be criminals they revere Scarface, and, and Pacino has said, listen, Michael Corleone, probably what I'm most remembered for, but when I go out in the street, everywhere I look, I still see people wearing Scarface shirts and Scarface memorabilia, and the movie was not a hit. Critics dumped on it. They, they thought it was too long and too boring and too ridiculous. Uh, who knows what happens with these movies that years over time, it becomes such a celebrated film. One more bit of news, and we'll get to Rob Paulson. North American movie going, slowly coming back to life. How about this? The return of the drive-in theaters. IFC's horror movie, The Wretched, leading the weekend, $85,000 at 21 drive-in movie theaters. A bunch of actors you've never heard of. It's about a young boy who discovers an evil witch in the nearby woods. Premiere the 2019 Fantasia International Film Festival since launching it May 1st at 11 drive-ins, including the Mission Tiki at Montclair, California. It's doing great. Also, IFC's Beanie Feldstein comedy. That's right. She was one of the stars of Booksmart, Jonah Hill's sister. How to Build a Girl. That took in $36,000 at nine drive-in locations. God, I wish we had a drive-in theater here in Jersey. I'd love to go to the movies and check out a drive-in. Uh, Solstice Studios announcing recently it will open Russell Crowe's Thriller July 1st with plans to launch on a nationwide basis. That's interesting. If all of you are wondering right now, when can we go back to the movies? Well, apparently they're betting on July one. The nation's three largest chains, AMC, Regal, and Cinemark, closed in mid-March amid concerns. The big one here, you know, a lot of movies have been moved around. This is what I'm focused on. I'm sure Joe is too. July 17th, Warner Brothers, uh, excuse me, Warner Brothers scheduled to open Christopher Nolan's Tenet. Shelter-in-place guidelines possibly still effective, unclear whether it'll be able to maintain. But that's the one. James Bond moved. A lot of other movies have moved. But for me, I'm like, you know what? July 17th, if I can go to the theaters and go watch a Christopher Nolan film, I can't wait. That raises us to the bigger issue of the fact Joe recently said Inception does not hold up for him upon uh, review. 
which clearly inflamed my brother, Dan Stanzik, Steve Cerruti, if he was listening. Joe, can you explain further, before we get to Rob Paulson, why Inception for you did not hold up? Okay, it doesn't hold up because, first off, there's no emotion in the movie. All the characters are so flat. Um, they just deliver their lines. The movie only references itself. It's like a cool plot, and, like, you know, the visuals are very cool. When the city is uh, the grid theme throughout the entire movie and how the city folds in on itself is very good and very uh, visually stimulating, but for me, that doesn't make the movie good. The plot's... It's not as original as people think, and the characters and their uh, delivery of lines and the writing just doesn't do it for me. So that's why I don't think it held up. I love this. I love that Joe is going out on a limb. He's not backing down. Uh, you can find him on Twitter. What's the Twitter handle again, Joe? It's Joe Eve, something like that? Go, 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 Joe E with two E's at the end. I don't, I don't know why it's that. <laughs> I, will, I will have to... D- do something else eventually. Yeah, 475 followers. I love it. Go, go, Joe E. Down with Inception as we get to our special guest. Well, real pleasure to welcome in our special guest today on Cinephile. His name is Rob Paulson, an Emmy Award winner. Also, he's won a Peabody 3 Annie Awards. You know him from Pinky and the Brain, Animaniacs, and, of course, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as well. That's right. He's been an acclaimed voice actor for a lot of years, and his new book is terrific. It's called Voice Lessons. I encourage all of you to check it out. Not only tells the backstory of Rob as a hockey lover from Michigan, how he became a voice actor, but also, very poignantly, how he overcame cancer and a very aggressive treatment and how he's able to cope. Rob, first and foremost, thanks so much for the time today. Oh, it's my great pleasure, buddy. I'm so grateful to be uh, able to speak, firstly, as you mentioned about the throat cancer, but secondly, the fact that you guys would take the time to chat with me is a very big deal. And I certainly hope um, you and all the folks listening are staying well and healthy. And uh, thank God we have these opportunities with this wonderful technology to talk to Yakko and Pinky and Taro and whoever else is banging around today. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't want to be like the dance monkey, dance monkey, but at some point I want you to do all the voices, so I appreciate right out of the gate you are appeasing me and, of course, your huge audience. We'll dive into the voice acting in a second and Spielberg and all the rest of it, but I'm a huge Brian De Palma fan. I actually just listened to him on Alec Baldwin's podcast, Here's the Thing, and like many, of course, I love Scarface and The Untouchables and Carlitos Way, but I'm trying to go back and watch some of the old De Palma, embarrassing I'd never seen Carrie before, so I just watched that. I just recorded Dress to Kill. And you've got a great story in voice lessons about the fact you yourself were in a Brian De Palma film. Tell us that story. Boy, thank you very much for that one. I am um, coming under the heading of, uh, of uh, you don't, you know, you look back and you go, should I have done that? I don't regret anything. I People paid me, and I was very grateful to get the job, so I'm happy to talk about it. I was... Uh, I am a big De Palma fan. I had uh, gone out to audition for this new movie. In fact, I believe it was the first movie Mr. De Palma made after Scarface, and from in which he was, or about which he was, well, not criticized, but taken to task a bit for its violence and the fact that it probably should have gotten an X rating and and all of that. And I, I think then Mr. De Palma, if I recall reading in the LA Times, he said, if they want an X rated movie, I'll God damn it, I'll give them one. And so Body Double was ostensibly maybe that. Um, and for those of you who don't know, and 
uh, or I may seen it but don't recall, it was a movie about the porn industry, a murder mystery uh, in the, you know, it, it, sort of on the periphery of the porn industry starring Craig Watson and Melanie Griffith. Um, and so there were a couple of scenes in the, that were, uh, you know, porn-like movies, uh, and yours truly was a cameraman in the movie. Um, I have to tell you that when I did the audition, I I did not see that that side of the that part of the picture I ran in and read a particular scene or two uh which did not include that um and then the next question is well would you have changed your mind probably not I wanted to work um so I got home and I got a message on my machine in those days that said hey Mr. De Palma loved you uh probably not going to lose use you for what he read you for but he really liked your your chops and you got three days work blah 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 great so I went down there and and I was uh, part of these scenes in which the pornographic movie industry was highlighted. So uh, I, I uttered the memorable line, where's the cum shot? And I don't know that I'll ever, A, a be able to rise above it or live it down, however you want to look at it. Um, but the, cool, the, greater part, the great part about it was that years later, uh, I was asleep and my son had some friends over. They were watching, I don't know, HBO, whatever. And my kid opened up the room and he, uh, the door to the bedroom. He said, hey, Dad, were you in a movie called Body Double? And my wife started laughing and I said, yep, that was me. So the sins of the father were indeed visited upon the son. Um, but it was great. I'm so, listen, I'm just grateful that I've been able to make a living doing essentially what got me in trouble in high school. And I still get to. Uh, but yeah, that was pretty cool. However, the opportunity to get to work with Brian De Palma and Steve Burham, wonderful world-class director of photography was pretty cool. Uh, that was really neat to spend three days watching, you know, uh, a, a filmmaker of, of that, uh, that group and that pedigree Coppola and, and, um, Spielberg and Scorsese, that group of guys, um, uh, De Palma, they were all you know, in that, that timeline. And so it was very cool to see how those guys work. Very cool. No question about it. I mean, that's uh, for many people, especially myself, those seventies movies, as good as it gets, cause you mentioned those auteurs and the way they put their stamp on films. And it's funny you mentioned Stephen Burham because in an interview with, with uh, Alec Baldwin, that's what De Palma mentioned. He goes, Stephen Burham is really critical. And he goes, sometimes the cinematographers, you know, certain ways you just jive in the right way, but he's actually done quite a few pictures with Burham, so I'm glad you got to work with him on Body Double as well. Since you mentioned Spielberg, you know, listen, so many of us, of course, revere him, but not many people like Rob Paulson can say Steven Spielberg has actually served them lunch before. He, in your telling of him, is as gracious and as kind as one would imagine. I love the Spielberg documentary, which was on HBO a couple years ago, and Dustin Hoffman had a great quote. Dustin Hoffman said he's almost like a guy who works for Steven Spielberg, then actually Steven Spielberg, right. meaning he's so kind and gracious and selfless. Uh, obviously, working with Spielberg on Animaniacs, you're going to be reuniting with him, because Animaniacs, I believe, is coming out on Hulu this year. Tell us all about your experiences with one of the all-time greats in cinema. Um, well, you pretty much encapsulated it, and... and, and I will be a little bit redundant because he just is, he is exactly that. He's kind, gracious, um, obviously really talented, but what it, when you're able to work with a guy like that, and I've had the great good fortune of doing that a number of times. I worked with him the first time on ET doing a bunch of 
background character voices. And um, in those days, at that time, the movie was called A Boy's Life. Uh, but it was really a pleasure to end up working on what became E.T. And then I worked with him on Amazing Stories, a non-camera role. And then I worked with him on Tiny Toon Adventures and Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain and uh, Freakazoid a little bit. And now here we are back again doing it again with The King of Hollywood. And it's interesting you mentioned that uh, um, documentary, that eponymous documentary on HBO. Not only was it really enjoyable, but about halfway through it, there was a nice chunk of Pinky in the Brain. And um, I called Maurice LaMarche, who's my dear friend, the brain, and um, said, dude, we are in Stephen's autobiography, in biography, whatever. Um, and what it did was showed me that his work is his work. And he's both, he's proud of all of it. Um, I am always... Uh, thrilled to be able to chat about Mr. Spielberg because when you're able to, as I said earlier, sort of rub shoulders at all with folks of that stature, it gives you an idea of how to behave in your life if you're fortunate enough to carve out anything resembling celebrity and whatever your field is. Um, and it also does the other thing. It, it allows you to have a sort of radar with people who fancy themselves to be a big deal, and they're really not, or at least not yet. And it, it makes you kind of think, boy, dude, I hope you save your money, because Hollywood doesn't need you. And the people who could behave in the way in which you're behaving right now, don't. And, um, and so it's a great opportunity to be able to keep my own ego in check. Um, I don't think that would have been a problem for me anyway, because my parents would have beat the living Christ out of me had I started to behave that way. Uh, but I have nothing about which to be egocentric anyway. And to see how Mr. Spielberg behaves to this day is uh, just an exercise, or rather a, a master class in style, grace, and professionalism. That's how he is. Um, I've had the great good fortune the same way my hero growing up my idol growing up in Michigan was Gordie Howe. I always wanted to be a hockey player, and Gordie was always my idol. And I had the incredible good fortune of befriending Mr. and Mrs. Howe years later with a, uh, because of a, a charity hockey team I played on out here, and we raised money for children's charity. So I got to play hockey with Gordie an awful lot, and we became very good friends. Um, and Gordie went from being my idol to my hero in a few seconds during a, um, uh, an autographing fundraiser in Vancouver, uh, during which I was signing Ninja Turtle stuff because I was doing Raphael at the time, and all the kids were, including Gordy's grandkids, were flipped out over turtles. But I was sitting next to Gordy, and a young man had come through the line to get a puck signed, waited probably an hour in line, and he was probably my age, and he said, thank you so much, Mr. Howe, for signing this. And Gordy was probably 65 at the time. And he put down his pen and said, not at all, son. I've worked too hard for this privilege. And in that moment, Gordy went from being my idol to my hero because he displayed precisely what you see in Mr. Spielberg and other people of that ilk. They, uh, they always make it about you. They always understand the humility and the humble nature of what 
great people um, are about. Uh, it's not unlike the way Lou Gehrig said, you know, some people think I've been handed a, a really raw deal, but right now I feel like I'm the luckiest man on the face of the earth. It turns out that's the way a lot of great people behave. And it just is, uh, it will always be the way it should be. It's not about age. It's not about um, generation. It's about class, style, kindness, and gratitude. And, um, and I'm so lucky to have had those examples in front of me um, during times when I could have gotten a bit full of myself. And I don't, I don't ever feel like I've actually been that way, but to the extent that I could have, man, what a, what an opportunity to, to just say, nah, son, it's not about you. It's about them. And so remember that it was, it was remarkable. That's very cool. As a Canadian, of course, I love Gordie Howe and uh, I love your, we have a shared passion for hockey as you tell your stories about loving hockey in Michigan and the most poignant story of voice lessons, which I want everyone to read the book start to finish because Rob does an amazing job of detailing his life and career, but particularly the sections about Chad, who is a young man who you met while playing in a charity hockey game. I know it's tough to tell the entire story, Rob. I don't know if we can do a truncated version, but uh, he seemed to be a very inspiring young man. And if I may say, I think your behavior towards him as his mother said, was um, awfully powerful as well. Well, thank you for bringing Chad up. Um, I just texted her mom, yes, his mom yesterday, um, Edna. And I, um, yeah, I, t- thank you so much for talking about the book. It, it is um, a total labor of love. It's not how I make my living, uh, but it was the time to do it as a result of my experience with cancer, my own personal experience. But Chad is the metaphorical hero of our story. Both he and his sister, Mandy, were born with um, uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. As many of your listeners may know, uh, MDA, uh, muscular dystrophy rather, is often uh, a genetic predisposition which uh, puts people sometimes with more than one child, God forgive them, um, in the same family, which is what happened to the Gazolas. But it turns out we were playing this hockey game uh, in Calgary against the, the Flame alumni, and I was told before the game the poster child, little Chad Gazzola, is five years old, and he is a Ninja Turtle freak. And when he comes out to center ice to drop a ceremonial puck, he's, he knows that Raphael, quote-unquote, is here. And, of course, that was yours truly. And so he would like to have you ha- help him drop the ceremonial puck. And I, you know, I'm there with Lanny McDonald and Jim Poplinski. And, you know, I mean, come on. It, it just was crazy. They had just won the Stanley Cup a couple of years earlier. And... uh and I, went, I skated out to center ice. My own son was about Chad's age, and I lost it. Um, pictures in the book. I'm, I'm transfixed and staring right at Chad because he was everything that you would expect a sweet little Ninja Turtle fan to be. Utterly guileless, completely sweet, um, dressed from head to toe in Ninja Turtle stuff in his badass motorized wheelchair. Um, and he and his family... And his sister, Mandy, who has also since left the rock, Chad and Mandy are both gone now. But what I learned from them and the extent to which Ninja Turtles was a potent, um, necessary vehicle for love, uh, power, uh, kindness, uh, courage, empathy on so many levels really taught me a lot about the extent to which these characters really 
connect with people's souls. And when it came time for me to deal with my own cancer, Chad's mother and others uh, who had kept in touch with me after their sweet babies had died after speaking to Yakko, Pinky, Raphael, and it's not just me, we all do it, but they reminded me the power of those characters that they brought to their children who have been dead for, in some cases, decades. And they reminded me that I had that ability to bring joy to my own self um, and that there was a lot of joy and laughter and love in myself to help me get through it. And make no mistake, folks, I don't draw them and I don't write them. I'm just the actor. And that is not, that is not false modesty, but it's a deeply collaborative effort. But the collective characters and their power, it turns out that love, you know, comes from, as they say, unexpected places. Same thing with courage and and empathy and strength often comes from these wacky cartoon characters, and it was paid back to me tenfold. And so it's a story worth telling, and I appreciate you bringing it up. It's a remarkable thing. Absolutely. Let's dive into the voice acting stuff. We're talking with Rob Paulson, who is famous for many voices here, Animaniacs, Pinky and the Brain, Ninja Turtles, to name just a few of the very, very many. I'm a young sportscaster starting out in Toronto, Rob, around 2002, 2003, and I said, okay, I can make a little extra money on the side. How about I get some voice work? 300 bucks to do a voice demo. And they say, okay, what different voices can you do? I do a few voices. All right, I get an agent very quickly. Richard Medich, Jam Talents. I'm like, this is great. A little extra money on the side. I must have gone... Yeah. Oh, for my first 50 auditions. And I remember going into each one thinking, oh, yeah, this is no problem. This is for Sears or Canadian Tire or whatever it was. You just read the tagline or you do a British accent, whatever it is. So very quickly, sure. I became demoralized by it. But the one that I did get was Quiznos. And I'll never forget the, the direction the guy gave me after I'd got it. He said, you know, you're talking like a sportscaster, which I understand is your vocation. But we need a little less, a little less. And the tagline was, Quiznos, a cut above. And when I would deliver it, I'd say, Quiznos, a cut above. They'd go, a little less, a little less, a little less. So eventually, it would sound like, Quiznos, a cut above. Great taste at low prices, like that. It was almost like a, a disaffected right. thing. And, and I have a new appreciation for voice acting, not just in that I was so miserable with my success rate, but that you can't just expect, oh, I have a good voice, I'll get voice work. And I thought one of the best parts right. of the book you explained is this. It's one thing to say, oh, I can talk like a turtle, but could you talk like a turtle drowning underwater with a southern accent? And like you explained, your brother-in-law could talk with like a, like a redneck accent, and it was so important. I thought it was so interesting the way that you were like, the way you do the accent is you drop a consonant. Like it's that kind of attention right. to detail. People think, oh, Michael Winslow from Lisa Academy does those funny noises, but it is so specific the way you have to work at this. And I had a newfound appreciation to reading your book, how hard you must work to get those voices. And after battling cancer, knowing that your voice register, hey, in the morning, I can't do this voice or I can't hit those notes at a certain time. Like, as you point out, Elton John can't sing the way Elton John once sang, but hey, he's Elton John. But if you can speak a little bit about the art right. of voice acting, I think that's fascinating the way you explained it. Well, thank you for, for teeing it up because what you said is so important. Um, just a quick anecdote. Our, our buddy Sean Astin, whom you guys know as uh, um, Samwise and Lord of the Rings and so many, you know, Bob on, um, what was it, season two of... Uh, Stranger thing. Anyway, you know Sean Aston, great guy. And Sean was Raphael on the 2012 version of, of uh, Turtles over at Nickelodeon, which I played Donatello, and Seth Green played Leo, and Greg Sides played Michelangelo, whom you guys know probably better as Beast Boy from Teen Titans. But 
Anyway, Sean is, a, by any measure, a successful Hollywood actor, film actor, TV actor. And he really, really wanted to do animation. He did a, he was old for a hundred. <laughs> old for a hundred. After, be, after being Sean Astin. And it's, a, it's it, acting is acting. Small V, large A with respect to voice acting. It, it is just a bit of a different technique because you don't have the camera to use an eyebrow raise to elicit a response from an audience on a giant screen. Um, and, uh, but the reason that people appreciate Mel Blanc or Dan Castellaneta or, or um, uh, Hank Azaria or Nancy Cartwright or any of the usual suspects is because they're terrific actors. Now they have a wonderful script, but they imbue the characters with a soul. Danny Castellaneta could riff all day as Homer Simpson all day. And, um, and he wouldn't need a script. Maurice LaMarche, your fellow Torontonian could rip riff all day as the brain or as uh, Morbo, the newscaster from Futurama. Um, and Billy West could be, you know, uh, Philip J. Fry all day long. Doesn't think like Billy, doesn't sound like Billy, but Billy's a pro. And that's what it's about. It's about finding nuance. It's about finding the soul. It's about um, imbuing the character with a soul, as I said. Um, and it's also something that's a labor of love. I enjoy picking apart things that I can store in my little mental Rolodex to use on my next uh, audition. And um, uh, Vanity Fair just did a real nice salad with me. They, they gave me a uh, 12 or 13 minute chunk. And to those of you who are interested, especially you if you're an actor, um, go to um, Vanity Fair online and they have a really lovely piece where they have a number of us who do this for a living, who uh, they present us with a bunch of characters we've never seen before and we just riff. Um, and we get to create on the spot which is a little bit different than the way it's done in real life. Cause often we get the job and then we work with producers and writers to hone the character before we actually record it. However, often while we're recording another show, a producer will say, Hey, I got this little thing that came up with three lines. What do you got? And that sometimes leads to a gig because you really kill it. And they go, Oh my God, that guy was really thinking of that girl was really on her toes. Let's write that character in. And if you're not willing to play and not free to create and not totally self-conscious about your limitations, you're not going to be able to do it. Um, so that's a skill that is learned. That's a skill. Um, improv really helps. Um, auditioning time after time after time after time and learning how not to take it personal uh, personally is a big deal. And, you know, you're talking to someone who has characters that people know often around the world, Yakko, Pinky, Carl Weezer, Raphael, Donatello, Snowball from Rick and Morty, um, The Mask on the animated series, Mighty Max, all that stuff. And I've done, I don't know, 2,500 half hours of animation and more to come. But that means I've auditioned for probably 5,000 and I didn't get most of them. And I'm not unusual. That's the nature of the beast after having been out here for 40 plus years. Um, so you just learn that you give it your best shot. And the, 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 the drag is when you leave an audition and you get back in your car and you go, Oh shit, 
that's what I should have done. So the, the, the real hook is getting to a place where you can get in your car and that most of the time that doesn't happen. That if they gave you another hour, there isn't really any more that you could have done. Then it's not up to you. The drag is when you come up with something better and you were not available to yourself to do it at the time that was presented to you. That, the gift is that opportunity. And if you're not ready for it, and nobody is for all of them, but if you're not ready for it, then you don't give it your best shot. And, and um, nobody's going to win them all. But the trick is trying to get to a place where you give it your absolute best shot with the time you were given and you, you just, you ain't got no more. And um, I had that experience on Futurama. I had two callbacks, was down to me and Billy West and someone else and Billy got it and they made absolutely the right choice. Billy did things that I didn't think of and, and the rest is history. Billy is Billy and, and he's a genius. He's wonderful. He's a great guy and he earned the, uh, the, the job and he was better than I for that role. But there's nothing else I could have done that was any better that it was in my bag of tricks. And I'm fine with that. You don't win them all. But when you win them, you, like, you hope that, that you can take them and run with them. And I've had more than my share of, of roles that have kind of become arguably iconic, I think. Uh, I don't think it's arguable. I think it absolutely is iconic. And that's why your story about dealing with cancer it's uh, just so heartbreaking when you're reading the book because I love the fact you had such honesty about it, Rob. It wasn't like, hey, I'm going to be destitute. Like you'd make a joke about, listen, I still have an Aston Martin, okay? But when my wife wanted to get an extension on the house, I had to tell her, hold on. And you said, I, I am completely aware yeah. of the cruel irony of this. This would be like a place kicker in football losing his toe. This is a voice actor yeah. who's robbed of his voice with throat cancer. And the first time you went through it, you're making jokes, you're making everybody laugh. But then the second time you had to go to the biopsy, a much different feel. And I love how vivid you portrayed it. Particularly, I think what was really strong was the whole issue of appetite. I think people often think, all right, you take chemo, you take radiation, you lose a bunch of weight, it knocks you in your ass, but eventually you get back to it. But I thought your point about, listen, a cheese pizza, I can take one bite, it tastes like cheese pizza, but two or three after that, no, and I can't even eat the fourth. And I love to eat this. Like there, yeah. there are certain foods like cheese it. you're like, I can't do it, literally. My esophagus is narrowed, my voice can't, you know, there's certain things I just cannot do. And people say, oh, I'd love to eat again. Yeah, but I can't. I physically cannot. If I do it, right. I'll throw up. And like, I thought that was particularly powerful, the way that you explain the real torture that people go through. Literally, you have to have a glass of water just to have a tiny morsel of sourdough bread. I mean, yeah. those challenges still stay with you. And I thought that was really strong that you put that in the book. Well, thank you. My goodness. Honestly, I, I cannot tell you how much that means to me. And by extension, my co-writer, Mike Fleeman, but uh, Mike was the one who did all the heavy lifting. I frankly had moments where I thought, Jesus Christ, this is pretty, you know, rambling diatribe here. And he said, no, 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 this is important because our mission with the publisher and Mike and me was to do precisely what you gleaned from the book. And that, that means so much because um, I, it was the time to write the book because I knew that I was in a position by virtue of what you've given me this glorious opportunity to do today to help. I really do believe, and my God, talk about a clear, we are all in this together. I mean, the reason I've made my living is because I do things that are universally joyful to me and to millions of others. They make people happy and they're joyful. We connect with music and laughter and drama and cinema. 
uh, books uh, in so many ways. Um, and and I, I look like now, just like humor, love, kindness, um, entertainment, is, it may be different culturally, but we all still connect and we all still like to laugh. And we also are subject to diseases which can kill us. This time it was cancer. Ironically, throat cancer for me, but I thought, what a glorious opportunity I have. Because if now I have a bully or pulpit and nice folks like you give it to me, moreover, you read the book and you totally get what we were after, I might have and we might have today, literally, someone listening to a guy who could, who they would say, dude, this guy was the voice of my childhood. He had throat cancer. You know, I just got diagnosed. I'm pretty bummed, but if he can do it, dot, 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 right? And that is a big deal. That's a really big deal because it transcends money. It transcends action figures. It transcends um, any, it's just a human experience. I don't expect to be like Jonas Salk. I didn't invent the polio vaccine, but I have a powerful story because of what I do for a living. And it came out of the blue. And because I think I do what I do and I'm predisposed to being a joyful person, I didn't look at it as though, oh my God, why me? I looked at it as, oh my God, why not me? Everybody has their stuff. Everybody takes a ding. Right now, somebody's getting a phone call about their four-year-old, about their four-year-old, who's not going to make it to six. And I got the phone call when I was 59, and I had hundreds of children whom I'd spoken to, many of whom didn't, who were dead, but their parents kept in touch with me to tell me, dude, you got this. You are a fountain of joy and gratitude simply because of what you do for a living. So what are you going to do about it, Junior? Are you going to feel sorry for yourself? Or are you going to take it and learn and put it down? And then a nice guy like you talks to me, and we never know what's going to come of our little conversation. And that is what we're all here for. We're struggling right now to help all of us, each other, to get back to whatever normal is. And I just turns out I had that experience a little bit earlier. But, man, I'm so grateful that you read the book, and I'm so grateful for the opportunity because it's not going to be on the New York Times bestseller list. It's not about that. It's about whoever gets whatever they get. And if they buy it or they borrow it or they find a dog-eared copy under somebody's dining room table because it levels it out, so be it. That's, that's why we did it. No question. And it's inspiring the way you write it. And I credit you because I think it was the honesty, which was the key. Like when you're talking about radiation, you go, listen, this is like lava down your throat. I, I mean, that's about as oh, yeah, it's rough. I mean, that's about as visual as it gets. And the fact you were able to overcome it and get back to work and understand, that, hey, certain days I'm not going to be 100%. Certain times I can't give it a go. Maybe I can't be as uh, gracious as I'd like to be. I mean, all that acceptance I thought was really, really powerful. Voice Lessons is the book. One other thought before we close, Rob, just because I love him so much. You mentioned one of my favorites in Hank Azaria 
who I have met a couple of times, and he's a great guy, and he's very funny and very gracious, and I love all his work. Yeah. Another guy's a guy I haven't got to meet, and unfortunately, he's been long gone. That's Phil Hartman. You mentioned in the book you were friends with Phil. Can you give me a Phil Hartman story? Again, fellow Canadian. I just I loved him on news radio, obviously, and The Simpsons, and he seemed like a, just such a genuinely nice guy. Oh, man, he was another local of yours. Boy, you got to, there's something in the water up there. You and Jim Carrey and <laughs> Phil Hartman, Maurice LaMarche, my God, Howie Mandel, you know. Um, uh, and by the way, my uncle used to work at the TTC for 40 years, and my aunt worked at Shoppers Drug Mart on the corner of Eglinton and Victoria Park. <laughs> and I went to hockey school at the Dave Keon Billy Harris Hockey School in Etobicoke. So I loved that whole area. Um, I'm all about Don Mills in Toronto. Anyway, I love um, it. Yeah, boy, Phil, I, I was very close to Phil. In fact, the day that Phil got Saturday Night Live, I knew that he had gone back to audition. And it was, I believe it was October, maybe August. I don't remember, but I think it was 1986. And I got a phone call. I said, Robbie, I said, Phil, what's up, buddy? He goes, I got it. And I knew exactly what he was talking about. And I, I lost my, you know what? Um, and man, did, did he light it up, didn't he? Uh, I had an experience, many experiences with Phil, which were like many others who were lucky enough to know him and love him, um, were not dissimilar to mine. And, and that is the following. Um, Phil was part of the groundlings before it became a, you know, this, this, uh, uh breeding ground for, world-class comics, comic actors. <clears throat> but he was there with Tress McNeil, who you guys know as Dot Warner and the Crazy Cat Lady and Babs Bunny and, um, uh, you know, Lorraine Newman, all that, those group, that group. Anyway, um, I was working with Phil a lot and we were friends. And Phil and I used to work with other people, Nancy Cartwright, who's Bart Simpson and uh, John Paragon, who was uh, John B. the Genie with Paul um, Rubens on Pee Wee. Um, and of course he played, Phil played Captain Carl and Pee Wee and we were all buddies. Um, and we were working on Spaceballs together doing background character voices, really great group, uh, which consisted of, of many actors, including Phil and me. And, and I remember, um, uh, I used to think of Phil when he would riff as terrifyingly inspirational at the same moment that I'd be looking at him going, Oh my God. He's from a, he's a nondescript guy, kid from what, Brantford or something? That's right. And I'm a kid from Grand Blank. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like a Grand Blank kid from Grand Blank, Michigan. I thought I was pretty sharp. This guy puts me in the shade. He's maybe seven or eight years older, but I can't do that. And it was Phil who literally put his hand on my shoulder and said, you're not supposed to do this, man. You're sharp. If, if you can get something from me, great. But it's about you finding your own stuff. You're, you're not supposed to be me. And what he did, uh, not only by that, it, it disarmed me and it made me feel like I could do it. Like I said, terrifyingly inspirational. And when we were working on Spaceballs, there was a point at which Mr. Um, Brooks came out and said, OK, we we during this scene, Bill Pullman crashes on the you know, planet and sand planet or whatever. And we got these critters going around. They're. they're folks and costumes and they're you know little people and we call them the dinks and one of the dinks returns in the picture to give P bill pullman some water 
So we need a name for him to refer to him later. Who's got something? And I looked at Phil and I said, hey, man, how about Gunga Dink? Now, I'm a big fan of poetry. And, um, um, oh, God, who, um, the gentleman who wrote, uh, uh, Rudyard Kipling, who wrote um, um, If, the poem If, and, you know, if you can keep your head while all around you are losing theirs, you'll be a man, my son. He also wrote a poem, which became a movie, about uh, an East Indian water boy named Gunga Din, D-I-N, okay? It's pronounced Gunga Din. So I thought Gunga Dink, water boy, clever, blah, blah, blah. Phil looked at me and said, Jesus Christ, Robbie, you're 25 years old. You got Mel Brooks right in front of you. That's unbelievable. And I said, yeah, I'm a, I don't know. So Phil raised his hand. He said, Mr. Brooks, yeah, what do you got, son? He didn't know Phil Hartman, right? What do you got? He goes, well, my buddy here, Rob, has got something. Tell him. I said, well, Mr. Brooks, I think I, maybe you could call him uh, Gunga Dink. And everybody laughed except Mr. Brooks. And every, the, the, the laughter died down. And Mr. Brooks said, uh, what's your name, son? I said, Rob, Rob Paulson. He goes, yeah, okay, Rob. In my business, wit is shit. Funny is money. Who's got something else? Now, I was like crestfallen. And Phil put his arm around me. He said, nah, man, it's because you were funnier than Mel Brooks. And I said, no, I was just a jerk. Well, cut to 20 years later. Uh, our buddy, Chris, Har uh, Chris Hardwick. We love Chris. And I've been, he's been, been dear friends for years. Chris had Mel Brooks on his show. And he relayed that story. And Mel, to his credit, said, you know, that sounds like something I would have said. Sorry, Rob, that was really funny. And I laughed. And I, I had a good... But the fact was that it was Phil who made, who made that story possible because I never would have said something. And it was Phil who had, his, had confidence in me to say, oh, dude. That, and it was. It was pretty clever. And, and it was Phil who said he could have taken it later on and said, Mr. Brooks, I've got something. How about Gunga Dink? Now, Mel probably still wouldn't have used it, but it was Phil who in front of everybody else said, my friend Rob here has got something. That's exactly what we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation about how the great ones behave. And, and he made it about me. And it's a remarkable story. And I'm grateful that I've got one of many that people had about Phil. He's a, he's a, a gift of a human to all of us. That is great, great stuff. Rob Paulson has been our special guest on Cinephile. You can follow him on Twitter at Yakko Pinky, Y-A-K-K-O, Pinky, P-I-N-K-Y. Of course, he's had a prolific career. Check out his book called Voice Lessons, and he's not going anywhere. Animaniacs get rebooted as well, 2020, so that's great news. And I do want to also mention, uh, as I mentioned, Rob, of course, has overcome cancer. He is the 2020 spokesperson for the HNCAs, that's Head and Neck Cancer Alliance, Oral Head and Neck Cancer Awareness Program. So he's not only a great guy and generous, but he is paying a four because of his triumphant battle with cancer and continues to inspire us all. Uh, I love the mention of Eglinton Victoria Park. I lived at Lawrence and Vic Park for a while and lived at Mount Pleasant and Eglinton <laughs> as well. So trust me, the, the, you're, you're singing to my heart. I'm speaking of where I am when I was in my early 20s. Uh, well, I'll tell you what. I, I'm, like I said, if the, if the, the hockey school were, the, we're, still, we're still there in Etobicoke, I would take my number 14 jersey and wait for Dave Keon to show up. And then I would run down to Sam the Chinese food man or Sam the subway man or whatever 
and uh, and and get myself some dinner, and then I would go to Piccadilly Tube at night and watch Jim Carrey or or Rough Trade, and I love that whole area. Oh, that's great stuff, Rob. Thanks so much, man. I really appreciate the Thanks, time. Man. Stay safe. Okay, buddy. Thank you, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. Mount Rushmore. All right, now it's time for the Mount Rushmore of Eddie Murphy movies. Listen, we're open for business. People got suggestions. I'll take your suggestions. How about the career of Eddie Murphy? A quick rundown of the options out there for his four best films. Here's the options out there. 48 Hours, Eddie Murphy's Delirious, Trading Places, Best Defense, Beverly Hills Cop, The Golden Child, Beverly Hills Cop 2, Eddie Murphy Raw, Coming to America, Harlem Nights, Another 48 Hours, Boomerang, The Distinguished Gentleman, Beverly Hills Cop 3, Vampire in Brooklyn, The Nighty Professor, Metro, Mulan, Dr. Doolittle, Holy Man, Life, Bowfinger, Nighty Professor 2, The Clumps, Shrek, Dr. Doolittle 2, Showtime, one of the worst movies ever. God, he soiled his career and De Niro's. The Adventures of Pluto Nash, did I say a horrible movie? I Spy, Daddy Daycare, The Haunted Mansion, Shrek 2, Dreamgirls, Norbit, Shrek the Third, Meet Dave, Imagine That, Shrek Forever After, Tower Heist, A Thousand Words, Mr. Church, Dolomite Is My Name. There's no question, he's one of the funniest actors of all time. He's also made more bombs than Hiroshima. I mean, that's crazy how many bad movies he's made. We should actually do Mount Rushmore of his worst movies. That'll be very easy. Norbit, Meet Dave, Showtime. There's three of them. Holy man, there you go. There's your, there's your quartet for his worst. But listen. He's a great. And Dolomite is my name. Joe and I liked a lot. I think Joe had it in his top 10 of last year. I liked it a lot as well. Coming to America. You, you can't find a funnier movie than that, okay? It still holds up. I know they're doing a sequel. I'm a little jaundiced about that. But the original, side-splittingly funny. Everything about incredible. He And of course, he plays a variety of characters. The first one to do that to that kind of acclaim and success rate, amazing. 48 hours. I mean, the scene where he goes in that redneck bar, all-time classic. The chemistry with him and Nick Nolte, phenomenal. Trading Places. Could watch it any day of the week. Him and Dan Aykroyd, so funny. It's all over $1. And you say, okay, now it gets easy, right? Beverly Hills Cop? No. With all apologies to Axel Foley, Rick Passmore will back me up. Bowfinger, criminally underrated. Him and Steve Martin together. That's right. I'm going with Bowfinger. Coming to America, 48 hours, Trading Places, and Bowfinger. The best of Eddie Murphy. Joe? That's pretty good. I'm, I'm gonna first and foremost just get coming to America, coming to America out of the way. That I think is his best movie. I will also, as much as I like Raw and Delirious as uh, specials that he did, I, it does not hold up in 2020 now. A lot of that material, so I'm not gonna put that on. But I will put on Trading Places because I like Christmas movies where Christmas isn't the focal point or the driving motivation behind the plot. So coming to America, Trading Places, I'll go with The Nutty Professor, just from the amount of characters that he did in that movie, and the I'm sure the amount of time he spent in the makeup chair for that. And then I will go with Dr. Doolittle, 1998, where he plays Dr. Don, Dr. John Doolittle, and he talks to animals. So mine's Dr. Doolittle, Coming to America, Trading Places, and The Nutty Professor. 
I like it. Well, I'm glad we agreed on trading places. And Nutty Professor, you know what? Uh, the original is really funny. And, uh, and I don't know if we're going to come back for him, but it definitely showed a different side of him. He didn't have to just rely on R-rated comedies, more family-friendly. I think, unfortunately, he went too much down that lane with the likes of Daddy Daycare and such. But yes, the first Nutty Professor, uh, Sherman Klump. I mean, how can you not cheer for an endearing guy like that? Uh, honorable mention of Dreamgirls, right. which he was nominated for an Academy Award. It felt like he was going to win. And they said, you know what hurt him was Norbit. All these voters were going to check their box for Eddie Murphy, a rare dramatic role in Dreamgirls. He's excellent. I think it's a terrific movie. Wonderful music. Beyonce, Jennifer Hudson won an Oscar. And then they looked up and saw billboards for Norbit and said, really? Are we going to give this guy an Oscar for this making crappy movie called Norbit? Is that what we're going to do? And no, Eddie Murphy did not win an Oscar for Dreamgirls and apparently was quite pissed about it. But that's life. He's still got hundreds of billions of dollars to rest on. Total Recall, next. All right, now it's time for Total Recall as we look back at a rather memorable year here, 1999 uh, film, so the year 2000. This is one of the you know the great years here when you took all the movies that came out that year. Uh, let's go through. In fact, there was that book that I read and which I reviewed, talked to the author, what a special year 1999 was in terms of the great films. So this should be an interesting year for Total Recall. Uh, best Picture was American Beauty. I can tell you right out of the gate, that shouldn't have won Best Picture. I liked it at the time. I don't think it's aged particularly well. I think if uh, Joe and I watched it again, we definitely wouldn't like it as much. I'm assuming Joe liked it, although I didn't love it. American Beauty won Best Picture. Joe, what else was nominated? We have The Cider House Rules, The Green Mile, The Insider, and The Sixth Sense. Um, I'm surprised by some of these nominations. I'm glad The Sixth Sense got nominated for Best Picture. I mean, that's rare you get like a supernatural thriller that gets that kind of uh, adoration from the Oscars, especially when there's only five nominees. That movie came out in August, came out of nowhere, was a gigantic hit. Good for the Oscars to reward The Sixth Sense. I had forgotten it was up for Best Picture. Um, Saturday House Rules is a nice movie, a little sentimental at times. American Beauty, as I mentioned, I don't think it's aged particularly well. And that's not even uh, what we know about Kevin Spacey. I just think the subplot, Chris Cooper, a little bit forced. Uh, Green Mile, I do like it. Uh, Joe mentioned earlier in terms of emotional moments, John Coffey. I mean, God, uh, Michael Clark Duncan, tremendous. But for me, this is a no-brainer. Very easy pick, The Insider. Peter Jambruge, Michael Mann, the producers, one of the great journalism movies ever. Electrifying story about a whistleblower and Jeffrey Wigand, played by Russell Crowe, and the producer, Lowell Bergman, played by Al Pacino. Their scenes together, their chemistry, as good as it gets, it's one of those you know, crusading against the system type movies, crackling tension, a great thriller. Not much comedy in there. There's a couple of music moments, but honestly, it's just a riveting thriller. And the stuff about 60 Minutes and Christopher Plummer and Philip Baker Hall, two great old actors. Plummer's playing Mike Wallace. Philip Baker Hall is Don Hewitt. I mean, the scene alone where Pacino's talking about, is it newsworthy? Yes. Will we air it? Of course not. Amazing. I love The Insider. I wish it won Best Picture. I'm happy it got nominated. Joe? I am going to go with The Sixth Sense because it is a horror movie. The Silence of the Lambs is the only horror movie to win Best Picture, and The Sixth Sense is one of six movies to ever be nominated for Best Picture. I'll go with them just to recognize that genre. All right, excellent. All right, how about Best Director? Sam Mendes won his first nomination and his first win. Who else was nominated? Spike Jones for Being John Malkovich. Lassie Hostrom for The Cider House Rules, Michael Mann for The Insider, and M. Night Shyamalan for The Sixth Sense. 
Okay, well, I went with Best Picture, The Insider, and so that feels like I should go with Best Director of uh, Michael Mann, but I'm not going to do that. God, Spike Jones and being John Malkovich, I mean, how good is that movie? How funny is it? How inventive is it? And yet, no, I'm going to go M. Night Shyamalan. Kind of the points Joe was making. Listen, this was original. This was unique and true. Maybe he never matched the feat of this first film. And yes, at times, you wonder what the hell happened to M. Night Shyamalan, but this was a pretty amazing story that he was able to pull this off as a kid with his kind of guts, get Bruce Willis. What the hell? You think I'd go best director Spike Jones for being John Malkovich and Michael Mann is a heavyweight champ and I love Heat, which didn't get nominated for anything. But M. Night Shyamalan, Sixth Sense, that's my vote. I like it. I like it. I'm going to go with Spike Jones though, for being John Malkovich, which is totally recency bias just because I watched that movie about a month ago. So... What he does in it's great. Also, if people are listening and they haven't seen any of his music videos, those are equally as great. So I'll go with Spike Jones. I love it. I love it. I mean, listen, both those picks are fantastic. That's a pretty good category. Three of those I have no issue with. Would have been happy with all three. Best actor was Kevin Spacey in American Beauty. Certainly a memorable role. Uh, Lolita. I mean, he's in love with a young high school girl. Plays it up well. Gets in shape. Uh, definitely shows the ennui of life and just a miserable guy, even though you know about Kevin Spacey's life, like his performance was great. Don't think he should have won, though. Who else was nominated, John? I'll tell you who I think should have won. Russell Crowe for The Insider, Richard Farnsworth for The Straight Story, Sean Penn, Sweet and Lowdown, and Denzel Washington, The Hurricane. A Hurricane, one of Denzel's best performances. God, he's great in that movie. Uh, the scene where he's in prison, he's telling the guy, he's pointing the phone at him saying, you know, you get me out of here. Uh, we've talked about Norton Jewison before on the podcast, but Denzel in the Hurricane, that might be my Mount Rushmore Denzel. Phenomenal performance. Sean Penn, sweet and low down again. We don't like Woody Allen, me and Joe, but I do like his movies, I must confess. And that was great because that was in many ways his ode to Fellini and um, La Strada, which is a film I love. Sean Penn uh, playing a very unlikable artist, and I thought he was really funny and excellent as Emmett Ray. I've never seen The Straight Story. I know it's a big omission by me. I heard it was excellent. But my choice is Russell Crowe as the insider. Put on about 30 pounds of the role, got his hair gray, put the glasses on, seemed like a very unlikable whistleblower, and yet he's a guy you root for because he's got the guts and the principles to tell people what big tobacco is all about. Nothing short of riveting. I think he won for Gladiator the next year. Not because Gladiator is great. I think it's good. I don't think it's great. I think he won because he realized he should have won for the insider. So it's almost something of a make good. I'm going Russell Crowe. I have no issue with that, but I'll go with Denzel Washington for the same reasons that you just said. It's one of his best movies, one of his best roles, and and the story is there, the script's there, his performance is there. I'll go with Denzel. Yeah, a man unjustly in prison. I mean, that's uh, about as meaty as it gets for a guy like Denzel. Best actress was Hilary Swank for Boys Don't Cry, which I finally saw probably about a year ago, maybe less than that. It was a tremendous performance. What else was nominated? Annette Bening for American Beauty, Janet McTeer for Tumbleweeds, Julian Moore for The End of the Affair and Meryl Streep, Music of the Heart. Well, as much as I love Meryl Streep, and I mentioned earlier the 21 nominations, I don't think the Music of the Heart nomination was a worthy one playing Roberta Guaspari. I'm sure somebody else could have been nominated that year. That was a strong year for movies in particular. But no-brainer for me. As good as Hilary Swank is, I love The End of the Affair. Beautiful romantic film from Neil Jordan, the director of The Crying Game. That's an adaptation of the great Graham Greene book. Uh, it's her and Stephen Ray, a really powerful, powerful story. Ray Fiennes and Julianne Moore is nothing short of magical as Sarah Miles. I think she's one of our best actresses, and I wish she'd won an Oscar for The End of the Affair. It's a wonderfully romantic movie. That's great. I have not seen um, 
the end of the affair before so i'll definitely have to check it out and much like the rest of this category um i haven't seen tumbleweeds or music of the heart so i can't speak to those so i'll go with hillary swank for boys don't cry i loved her performance in that also uh, a movie about a trans man in 1999 i think that's a story we're telling as well so i'll go with hillary swank definitely a movie you're right joe at that time 20 years ago people were not as enlightened as they are today uh, very gutsy performance. I mean, the scene where she just gets raped and abused. I mean, it is a, a painful, painful movie to watch, but definitely a very committed performance. I've not also seen Tumbleweed, so sorry to Janet McTeer if she should have won. Best Supporting Actor is Michael Caine, The Cider House Rules. He does have some ni- nice moments, you know, uh, Good Night, Sweet Princes, all that stuff. But who else was nominated? Tom Cruise for Magnolia. Michael Clark Duncan for The Green Mile. Jude Law, The Talented Mr. Ripley and Haley Joel Osment for The Sixth Sense. So I've gone on record with how much I hate Tom Cruise because of uh, his support of Scientology. And I came to light on this after seeing the great documentary about Scientology. If you haven't seen it, it's an amazing work in which they show just how horrific Scientology is and what they do and where they you know, poison people and brainwash them. And the big thing is if you try to get out of it, they, they ruin your life. Going Clear is the name of the documentary. And the reason why I hold Cruise culpable is because he is the most famous face of Scientology. And if ever he told David Miscavige and these guys, hey, knock it off. If somebody wants to leave their religion, let them do it. Don't torture them. Then I would have more respect for Tom Cruise. Instead, he's never done that. Props to Leah Remini, by the way, who has been fearless in her denunciation of Scientology and has risked all that that comes with it. Paul Haggis, of course, the great Canadian writer-director, also very much featured in that documentary, insulting Scientology and proving how stupid and how ridiculous it is. And it's not a religion. It's a very poisonous thing. Having said all that, I've got to put aside personal bias. Tom Cruise is brilliant in Magnolia. Magnolia is one of my favorite movies, and he is phenomenal as Mackie because he comes across as this guy. I mean, he is repellent. He is a repugnant woman. Uh, excuse me, man. They respect the cock, tame the cunt. Like, the stuff he's saying is just horrible. And yet you have to somehow like this guy. And the scene where he gets emotional and he's holding Jason Robart's hand and crying and having this tearful reconciliation, best work of Tom Cruise's career. And a lot of that is because it's P.T. Anderson who wrote and directed it. But I got to put aside personal bias. I don't like him. I don't like what he stands for. I don't like that smile on his face. I love when he was on Oprah jumping on the couch because you realize this guy's a nut job. But honestly, Joe, Magnolia, great, great film. And Tom Cruise deserved an Oscar for it. Oh, it's so good. After your review a few um, episodes back of Magnolia, I went and checked it out. And it, it it's long, but it's so good. It's three hours plus, but it's definitely worth the ride. If you're going Tom Cruise, though, then I'll go with Haley Joel Osment for The Sixth Sense, though. he ca- I thought he, he was the perfect kid to play that role and he hit some depths that I you know for for an actor that age I thought was really impressive I'll go with Jahili Jalasman no issue with that kid actor performances you're right generally overlooked best supporting actress Angelina Joan crazy and girl interrupted as Lisa Rowe who else was nominated Tony Coletti for The Sixth Sense Catherine Keener for being John Malkovich Samantha Morton Sweet and Low Down and Chloe Sevigny for Boys Don't Cry again good category here Chloe Sevigny I mean the way that she's in love with Brandon Tina whisking her life really strong again Sweet and Low Down the performances of Sean Penn and Samantha Morton delicate and sweet uh, Tony Collette in The Sixth Sense God, how good is she you know, playing all this torture and stuff if I'm going to give it you know, best picture buzz maybe it's in there 
I don't have an issue with Angelina Jolie winning for Girl Interrupted, but I'd probably go with Catherine Keener being John Malkovich. Listen, it's a great, great movie, and I wish it had been recognized. And the way that she's in love with Malkovich and her uh, performance opposite John Cusack, very memorable. She's made a lot of great indie movies. I'll go with Catherine Keener. I agree with you. I'll go with Catherine Keener, too. And maybe, again, this is recency bias, but she's so great in that movie. She delivers the, the line, uh, each line so well. I'll go with Catherine Keener. Best screenplay written directly for the screen. I wish it was a three-way tie. Alan Ball won for American Beauty, and that's not one of the three picks I would have gone with. Who are the other nominees? Being John Malkovich, Charlie Kaufman, Magnolia, Paul Thomas Anderson, The Sixth Sense, M. Night Shyamalan, and Topsy-Turvy, Mike Lee. Topsy-Turvy, my friend Max Bradas loves that movie. Gilbert and Sullivan, Mike Lee is very creative. If you like films about the creative process and old-school comedy, I honestly, I want a three-way tie. Being John Malkovich is so funny and so inventive and clearly the work of genius. Only Charlie Kaufman could do it. Magnolia is from arguably our greatest writer-director and Paul Thomas Anderson in which he is reaching for the sky, swinging for the fences. It is so audacious what he does with that three-hour film tying in life and fate. And he's got a scene where they're singing along together from an Amy Mann song. And the first 10 minutes is so inventive talking about chance and consequences. And then there's The Sixth Sense, which M. Night Shyamalan pulled off with one of the greatest endings you've ever seen, and he shocked the entire world. I mean, I don't, I don't know how I can do this. I'm going to go with Paul Thomas Anderson, but I'm telling you, Joe, three-way tie, I have no issue with it. Yeah, I agree with you. I have no issue with this being a three-way tie. I guess I'll lean towards The Sixth Sense, but looking over this, how is Magnolia not nominated for Best Picture this year? Well, that's what I'm telling you. In 1999, one of the great years in movies, and you're right, when I looked at that list, I know you like the Green Mile a lot, but I mean, if I look at that list, I can quickly omit Green Mile, Cider House Rules, and American Beauty and say, okay, Insider and Sixth Sense can stay, but let's put in being John Malkwitz, let's put in Magnolia, and honestly, I'd probably put in The End of the Affair. I mean, Sweet and Lowdown even. I mean, that's, that's a very easy way we could redo that five, and you're right. Magnolia, the most glaring omission from the Best Picture race. Yeah, wow. Well, in that case, I'm going to change my vote and give it to Magnolia because Paul <laughs> Tom and Anderson deserve, <laughs> deserve something here. Yeah. Okay. Best screenplay based on previous material. Satterhouse Rules 1, John Irving. Come on, listen. Again, it's a nice movie. Should not have won the best. Look at these nominees. Give me the other nominees, Joe. Election by uh, Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor, The Green Mile, Frank Darabont, The Insider, Eric Roth and Michael Mann, and the talented Mr. Ripley, Anthony Mignella. Listen, I got to go. Anthony Mangella is a great one, but I love The Insider. Eric Roth, Michael Mann, I already talked to you about how it's about principles and how you can make that stuff so entertaining. It's so smart and well done. Election is a really funny movie from Alexander Payne. He does get nominated often, and I think he is obviously a very acclaimed writer. And Frank Darabont did a good job with The Green Mile, but obviously he's gotten lots of pop about Shawshank Redemption over the years. Not Oscar glory, of course, but just the amount of people who love Shawshank. I'll go with Eric Roth and Michael Mann for The Insider. I like that choice, and just because I'm sticking to my guns on the Green Mile, I will give that best adapted screenplay. All right, good stuff here on Total Recall. We'll keep this going as I had message with Joe. I think we'll do these until we've done all of this uh, millennium, and then maybe we'll do a few more after that. But I think we've hit on most of the ones post-2000. This was a good list and a very memorable year in movies from 1999. Thank you so much to listening to Cinephile. I appreciate all of you. Subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to our special guest, Rob Paulson, and check out his book, Voice Lessons, next week on Cinephile, a deep dive into all three seasons, 30 episodes of Ozark, and listen to that, the HBO miniseries starring Mark Ruffalo. I know this much is true. Until then, I'll see you at the movies.